Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Netflix Roulette. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Movie Go Round. Again, this week is Netflix Roulette. That means myself, David, and Nicole all spun a Netflix Roulette generator, and then we picked uh, a movie from one of the three. The reason we do that is so we don't get a bunch of 20-minute documentaries or bizarre films that we can't necessarily use on a show like this. And this week, we got a very interesting film, perhaps not as bad of a film as we could have gotten. It's no Sharknado, but it is an interesting film. Uh, let me introduce my two wonderful co-host joining me as always david luzader how are you i'm doing all right i've got the energy to get me through this and then i will immediately pass out and i also realized this week our theme song makes me want to dance like a muppet it's great isn't it i love it i have so cotton to that theme song it makes me so happy and you know who found that theme song for us is nicole davis how are you hey oh it's me and Speaking of theme songs, boy, I am so glad our theme music was not written by John Bryan, the composer for this movie. I cannot tell you. Fight me, Nicole. I want to give that man an award. <laughs> wow. Uh, we are gonna, we're going to get into that. And the movie is Punch Drunk Love. But before I get into that, I do want to introduce a guest. We tend to have guests on these Netflix roulette weeks, and we're very excited about this. We have podcasted with our guests before on Geek Cinema Society, our last film show. So go ahead and find that. Uh, Matthew Sarge. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brett. Now, what film did we do on Geek Cinema with you? Refresh my memory. Uh, we did Wizards. Wizards, that's right. Oh, with, yeah. with the that's right. Mark that was Hamill. one of the weirder one entries we had. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. It's always fun. Matthew Sargent is a phenomenal artist, and of course you can find that art. Your website is skippinginfinity.com skippinginfinity.com you're available for commissions you've been doing a lot of really cool stuff with D&D themes I know you were doing D&D commissions for a while and now you are also doing a coloring book right? yeah um, after I did a whole bunch of commissions I put them together in a coloring book um, because they were primarily line drawings that I was doing and that seemed to fit the, the coloring book thing very well Right on. And, of course, you are responsible for our pain. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that. You, Matthew hopped on, uh, hopped on Facebook when we were picking uh, our, last, our last rotations. You did this to us. And he's like, hey, maybe you guys should watch Dunstan Checks In. And then a couple oh, other people started commenting. And all of a sudden, we're watching Dunstan Checks In. So, Which was thanks, a delightful Matthew. romp about a monkey in a hotel with Jason it's Alexander. Not a Whatever. Uh, but here's the thing. I, I, the reason I mention it is A, to publicly shame Matthew, and then to B, get his take on it because he just watched the movie last night voluntarily. Yeah, I watched it again last night for the first time in probably like 15 years at least, and I think it holds up just fine. <laughs> it's not great, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, it's sitting with me more fondly in the weeks following. Um, I'm starting to get some of the the appeal, I think, maybe. Maybe that's just because I spent the last 30 minutes on the Airbud website um, while we were waiting for Nicole. 
Which, by the way, oh, that is, was that was a dark journey. Which, by oh, the way, was... you can essentially watch wow. all of the Airbud movies and its associated films for free on there. Uh, but let's talk about the movie that we are watching this week. We spun the wheel. We got Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love, of course, is what two thousand four. Adam Sandler is it two thousand four? I should have had that. 2002. 2002. Close enough. Uh, although susceptible to violent outbursts, bathroom supplies business owner Barry Egan is a timid and shy man by disposition, leading a lonely, uneventful life partly due to the constant berating he suffers from his seven sisters. However, several events transpire that shake up Egan's mundane existence, one of which is following in, uh, with, in love with one of his sister's co-workers, Lena Leonard. But the romance is threatened when Egan falls victim to an extortionist. Uh, this movie is one of my all-time favorite Adam Sandler movies. I am a Sandler apologist. I think this is a good movie. Aside from him being in it, I think it's his best performance. And I think this is going to be really fun to talk about. Because I think we're just going to end up talking more about him. Uh, so... Why don't we go around the table really quick and get some broad impressions of this movie before we get into it? Because it's a weird movie. You could almost go as far to say that it has avant-garde elements and is not a told in a traditional fashion. Uh, so, Matthew, our guest, you had never seen this before. I think, I, as I said, I'm the only person who had seen this, I believe. So, what were kind of your thoughts? It was definitely weird. Um, I'm not sure how much I liked it. Like, I like certain elements of it, but it seemed going out of its way to be super artsy mm -hmm. and to a point where it's just like, I don't get it. Am I supposed to get it? See, Matthew, you and I are both Columbia graduates. It's our job to watch super artsy films and try to understand them, even if there's nothing to understand. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I digress. Um, yeah, yeah. There, I could I could absolutely see that. I could add, I, again, Sandler apologist here. I know it. I'm owning up to it. I'm going to do it this whole episode. Uh, Nicole, aside from the music not yes. uh, being to your liking, what did you think of the film? I thought it was well made. I thought it was well acted. I agree with you that it's Adam Sandler's best performance. And I, by the way, I don't hate Adam Sandler unequivocally. I really liked him in The Wedding Singer. Um, I've liked him in a couple of other things. But I just... The stuff he's been making in the last 15 years, just it's, it's like he hates his own audience. Um, but this movie, I thought, was... You know, it, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. You know, my kids happen to be watching it with me. They're both teenagers. Um, and more than once, each of them asked me, what is this movie? What are we watching? What is going on? And that's kind of the feeling I had for a while. And then I just decided I was just going to go with it. And um, it's hard to say if I liked it. <laughs> that, that is a common consensus with, consensus with it yeah. and you you make a really I, interesting point I appreciated point. it on an artistic level you make an interesting point about Adam Sandler hating his own audience because uh, I think I think I have to admit that one of the aspects of Sandler for me is that being of a millennial generation 
I grew up with 90s and early 2000s Sandler. So I love Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, Waterboy, Wedding Singer, um, Big Daddy. I think Big Daddy's great. Uh, I love Fifty First Dates. It's my, it's my guilty pleasure romantic comedy movie. I love Mr. Deeds. Um, not all of those are necessarily good movies, but I love them. Uh, but in, the, in recent years, he's even deviated from the formula that made those lovable and kind of just pixels. Pixels. Uh, that's all I have to say. Is Jack movies like Pixels, Pixels exist? <laughs> so, uh, and of course, he has a Netflix deal right now, which we'll talk about later as well, because that might be able to see him redeem himself a little bit. Uh, David, some broad thoughts on this movie. All right, I'm going to step away from the Adam Sandler talk for a moment and talk about Paul Thomas Anderson, the director of this film. I actually really like Paul Thomas Anderson as a director. Um, I haven't seen all of his work, but I've seen the stuff from this time period. Obviously, There Will Be Blood is considered a great movie. Uh, Boogie Nights, I think, is a a great film. Um, I've not seen all of Magnolia, but uh, from what (laughs) I have seen, it's good. People enjoy it. This is kind of in the middle... Huh? It's so long. In fact, after he made it, he's like, I need to make a shorter movie, and that's why he made this. uh, Paul F. Tompkins, who is in Magnolia, describes it as uh, that movie where everybody in the phone book talks to one another. Uh, and this was in the middle of all of that, of those like of those four films. This is uh, just before There Will Be Blood. Well, not just before. It's the one he made before There Will Be Blood. There was a several-year gap. Um, so this was, uh, this was the peak of Paul Thomas Anderson, and I get what it's going for here. But this is like the one time that I'm not fully in that Paul Thomas Anderson camp. Uh, I, we're going to talk a lot about some stuff later on that I think is really interesting, but it doesn't work for me. And I don't know if at times it's very good, but I'll save those thoughts for a little bit later. Yeah, he's an interesting dude. Um, also, another super obscure one out there is like the 20 minutes of cigarettes and coffee, which he did. Before any. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, which is a fascinating film. Uh, a fascinating really short film. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I had seen this movie before, um, likely due to my upbringing of lots of Adam Sandler. Uh, and I think it's his most gratifying performance as an actor. Um, I would say something similar about Rain Over Me, um, but that's a little bit heavy-handed at times. Yeah. Especially when it just starts, like, randomly tying in 9-11 to bring in emotional aspects. Um, Well, and also when it goes on for 35 minutes longer than it should. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I find it funny because when Roger Ebert saw this film, and he wrote in the Sun-Times that he thought it was a great film, he, he rated it highly, and he said, quote, uh, Sandler, liberated from the constraints of the formula, reveals unexpected depths as an actor. Watching this film, you can imagine him in Dennis Hopper roles. He has darkness, obsession, and power. He can't go on making those moronic comedies forever. Can he? Oh, how <laughs> wrong you were, Robert. Or Roger. But, but that's what he likes making. He, likes, he likes making, making Because he just friends. makes them with his friends. Like, that's all he does, yeah. is he picks his friends out and makes them with his own production company, and... Everybody knows they're going to be bad, but we watch the train wreck, which is why Netflix pays him ungodly amounts of money now. They're some of the highest watched films on Netflix. And if you look at pictures of Sandler from the mid to late 2000s, like he just like back when he was like 
doing these serious dramatic roles and kind of like really in the spotlight. He just looks miserable. He just like, he hates the whole circus and he's happier when he's making, I can't think of any of the movies that are on Netflix starring him. I know the cobbler is one, which I assume is about a delicious dessert he makes. Uh, um, no, the story of that is he's a shoemaker that where if he wears their shoes, he lives their lives. Why do I know this? <laughs> Ooh, I'm not going down this rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> I thought I thought the talent agent one was kind of funny last time. Uh, <laughs> what was it, like Sandy Wexler or something like that? I thought that was kind of interesting. But uh, his new movie, which is the Mayorowitz stories, new and selected. Um, is actually getting great reviews. It has an average of 80% on IMDb Rotten Tomatoes. It has had some buzz about maybe a supporting actor uh, uh, nomination for Dustin Hoffman in it. And uh, this is part of his overarching deal with Netflix. So maybe he's getting back to that. I don't know, Matthew, have you ever liked Sandler? First of all, have you ever liked Sandler? And then second, have you ever liked him in serious roles? Or is he better when he's just slapstick? I think most of my experience with him has been the comedies um, from the 90s. But even then, I didn't like grow up watching a lot of Adam Sandler movies for whatever reason. Um, so I really have not seen him in much. Yeah, he um, um, he seems to be maybe in a place where he could find grace again with audiences if this if this movie is indicative of, of I don't know it's just one movie right it could be anything and people are are praising Hoffman more than him but they're saying he's not bad in it and that's a lot better than what we've had lately um, but to but to move back to punch drunk love this was probably his first serious role uh, yeah I mean kind of I'm looking I'm looking hold on I, well, I mean, the wedding singer, I think, was it, oh, it had some, some minor a, moments of, you know, Billy pathos. Idol push a guy down an airplane thing while singing a song. <laughs> I think it's more dramedy, though. That one has yeah, more serious it's not moments. Slapstick. Compared okay. to Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore. And, yeah, that's and the answer is yes, Punch Drunk Gloves is first serious role. Okay. Um, oh, that reminds me. He had like a, uh, almost like a Tom Hanks. Meg Ryan era of his career, but instead it was just him and Drew Barrymore, um, where they did at least that, three movies together. Uh, yeah, like a couple of years ago. Did he do one with her a couple of years ago too? Yeah, okay. I believe it was called Twisted. Something about them all going to Africa. Why do I know so much about crappy <laughs> Adam Sandler movies? <laughs> but you know what? I'll stand is... by like Wedding Singer and Fifty First Dates. That I could not tell you who was in the cabinet in the current White House, but I can tell you, Adam, sit, this is, oh, I'm having issues. Uh, one of the things this movie does, and I'd like to talk about this, David just put the Sandler yell in our docket. And it's like, yeah, it's like, I can't, I don't even want to attempt to mimic it, but it's like the, the mix of desperation and anger and frustration that he does when he kind of just groans loudly. In every and, uh, movie. In every movie. But one thing I was reading when I was reading a review of this new movie of his is that um, he does it in this movie, of course, 
but he does it in a way that plays to his strengths, where it doesn't just feel like a caricature of Adam Sandler. It feels like a guy that's genuinely distraught. And I think that's what he does in this movie really well. I think one of his most interesting scenes in this movie is he's going on a date. His sisters embarrassed him with the woman he's going on the date with. So he walks into the restroom at the restaurant and demolishes the restroom and then just kind of walks out. And and then he gets yeah. kicked out. But um, he feels angry in this movie, but you can't help but sympathize with his anger because his life is so sad. Uh, okay, look. And this is where a lot of my sticking point is. This movie confuses sympathy with likability. This movie thinks because I feel bad for the way that he has been treated by his family, which is terrible, that I'm supposed to like him. I'm not really given a lot of reasons to like her. That's one of my biggest issues with this movie. There's not a lot of people to like. The woman's all right, but everything about Leonard is a red flag. (laughs) She is not very intelligent if this is the person that like he is steps away from being abusive if he's destroying a bathroom i'm sorry that's just like the truth of it like Mm -hmm. this guy has real major problems and i I don't see anything in like the dates they went on that unless she's also fairly crazy that convinces me that she'd be like yeah this dude's solid i like it yeah he's 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 doesn't just have red flags he's got like the two you know he's got like the two red glow sticks from like the guy at the airport kind of waving them at people like there is no mistaking that having any sort of relationship you know trying to have a romantic relationship with this man is a mistake and i that's just the this was my sticking point about the movie because while the woman is almost as you know, Lena is almost as odd as he is. She is kind um, with it and patient. And I don't understand why she wants to be with him. I really don't. Other than that, I agree. They <laughs> seem to be able to hold a conversation together. Not very good conversations yeah. either. Uh, in my notes, so, I literally have... Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, David. Yeah, so, what did you yeah, say, Matthew? In my notes, I literally have what does she see in him, yeah. but then also what does he see in her because her character is seemingly pretty underdeveloped. Like, she's kind and a little bit of a stalker, but <laughs> we don't really know much else. Yeah, we we talked about how uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, after making Magnolia, wanted to make a shorter movie. And this clocks in at an hour and a half. And I think a sacrifice there is, as Matthew's pointing out, not a lot of character development. No, although I think Emily Watson does the best she can. And I think she brings a lot to a part that's not written very deeply. Yeah, you you definitely get a sense of her character, but... You don't right. really know much about her by the end. One thing I do like no, about the dynamic. No, but she's pretty and she wants to pay attention to him. Right. <laughs> uh, so I suspect that's that's a big part of his attraction for her. True. I, I think I think one of one of the dynamics with them I do like is that I look at uh, Barry and I look at um, uh, Lena, and it's kind of this like this this manifestation of loneliness that feels very in your face and feels very poignant to me 
because he is just so lonely. From the first moment of this movie, he is sitting in an empty storage locker at a desk trying to redeem coupons and is trying to get the guy to call him back on his work phone because he doesn't... Uh, On his home phone. Right, rather than his home phone. Um, And there's just something so deeply lonely about it. And the guy's like, oh, no, I'm sure you'll be in the office. And he's like, no, just... Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right, David. Call back his home phone, not his work Mm -hmm. phone. Um, And there's just something so deeply lonely and sad about his existence. And then when Lena gets thrust into it, this is a woman who um, has been previously married, which is alluded to very lightly in the movie because he just he goes over like some very brief background on her in a weird phone call in the middle of Hawaii. Um, And she's been previously married. She's working a job that sends her around all over the place so obviously there might be some inherent loneliness to the inability to maintain a relationship um and maybe that's one of the reasons she gravitates toward him is because she thinks he's cute and she struggles to hold relationships and obviously the payoff of this movie is that these coupons that he's been messing with all along uh hopefully we never get them a resolution, but we hopefully pay for him to fly around and kind of just follow her around, which in itself is kind of a bizarre element of their weak old relationship. Yeah. Um, but I digress. I You feel lonely watching this movie with them, and I, I do think that is an important thing. I think the movie's trying I, to do that. I get where you're coming from. Also, that, um, that coupon thing is based on a real event that happened. Yes, yeah. Where somebody got 1.25 million frequent flyer miles by finding a giant loophole in the, if like $3,000 by finding that giant loophole in the company's ad campaign, and they were not too pleased about it. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, he's just a deeply sad character to me. And you're right, though, David. Like, yeah. there's no, there's nothing that, like, tells you he's a good person or not. In fact, there's things to allude that he's not. Um, he breaks stuff. Like, I don't know, he breaks a lot of stuff, and he just kind of took the piano out of the street, but I don't know, it kind of looked like garbage. Everybody Um, in this movie is kind of a bad person. I think everybody in this movie is a dysfunctional person, at least. I don't think Lena's Lena's a bad person. Right, well, yeah, she she was kind of my exception, but, like, the sisters are all horrible, horrible people. Oh, they're horrible. Uh, and then, like, the husband that he goes to, and he's like, I need a therapist, and the guy's like, yeah, I can help you. And then, like, immediately turns around and, like, tells the sister, like, like that just, and, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is actually probably one of my favorite characters in the he's movie, great. because it's just so, like, odd, like, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna trap you in this weird morality complex, which probably <laughs> works on a lot of people. Where it's right. like, because you're a pervert, I deserve to extort you. <laughs> okay, yeah. Never mind that he's the one running the sex lines exactly. out of his business. Out of his mattress shop. Yes. I love him in this movie. I love him so much in this movie. He, Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. can like slick his hair back, look greasy, put on a wife beater, and be the sleaziest dude in the world, and it just works. Um. Like, he's great in this movie. And one of my favorite scenes is when 
Sandler finally and inexplicably finds him and they just stare each other down. It's just this really aggressive scene that has no climax and I love it. And the thing that makes that all kind of path for me is that Sandler is still clutching the phone. Yes. (laughs) But he has traveled. He gets, he gets all the way from, from California, Sherman Oaks, California to Provo, Provo, Utah. Utah, Clutching the phone, the phone in his hand. And then just gives it to the guy and walks out. I love it. That was pretty great. Yeah. I, I, but yeah, you guys are right. Everybody's very dysfunctional in this, in this, in this film. Um, one thing I want to talk about this, this, with this film, and this is something Nicole and I will banter back and forth on, is the music. Uh, and I'd also that. be curious to hear Matthew's thoughts as a Matthew. Aren't you? A, aren't you a fellow musician? I am. All right, me and Matthew. I don't know. I don't know if Matthew agrees with me or not, but maybe maybe him and I can corner Nicole, or you guys are going to corner me. <laughs> um, I think the movie's fan. I think the movie's music is fantastic, and I think that that Birdman, which I love the music to Birdman, took heavily took a cue from this. Um, all those years later, because it is a it is a avant-garde, uh, methodic, uh, essentially drumbeat soundtrack that offers a kind of a pulse to to scenes where where it is it is almost more emotional than what's happening on screen, and it kind of gives you cues, almost like a laugh track of sorts, as to what's going on. And all soundtracks do that, but this is very upfront about it in a very musical way. Um, and I love that it's mixed with. Uh, 1950s sing-along musical soundtracks, which was part of the weird intention of Anderson working with this composer and deciding that um, we want this to have like the kind of music that like a romantic movie in the 50s would have, but then also be you know uh, have a dichotomy of of that mixed with these like ex- experimental drum beats, and I kind of love that. Uh, Birdman's more jazzy but it certainly took a cue, I think, from this. And I love it. I think Nicole hates it. I, think- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will jump in real quick before I, Nicole's going to have lots to say. Uh, I think it does set an atmosphere really well. That scene in the warehouse uh, where all this just chaos, the music made me so stressed in that scene. Oh, yeah. It, just like the noise going on everywhere. Like it was very effective. Just the noise going on everywhere. I just, I wanted it to stop. <laughs> I wanted that scene to end just so I could take a breath, uh, which is interesting for a movie that doesn't have a lot of action. Uh, you just have the, uh, I, look, I just gotta go, you have the bitch sister coming in, asking him 8 million questions, not giving any chance to respond to any single one of them while this like music's going on and guys are crashing forklifts outside. And I was just to the point where I was like, come on, just, uh, take a breath. Somebody step outside for a minute. Which is how he must feel in that situation as a guy who is perpetually annoyed to death with his sisters. So... Well, I mean, I I agree that the music is effective i imagine that it's intended to reflect barry's agitated mental state even when he's trying to appear calm on the outside you get you know it it gets more and more frantic and that's what i imagine is going on in his head and why he can go from appearing calm to just snapping completely and throwing things through windows it from you know the space of one heartbeat to the next because he's just snaps and this happens to him on a fairly 
frequent basis, I would guess, um, or at least whenever he's exposed to his sisters. Um, but the, you know, the music is, it's incredibly intrusive in the movie and distracting and I found that it was keeping me from it was holding me at a distance from feeling a whole lot of anything for the characters so uh, it's just uh I don't know. It's I I found it. <laughs> I wrote in my notes. Director Paul Thomas Anderson, cast crew Adam Sandler, Emily Watson, Luis Guzman, etc. Written by Paul Thomas Anderson. Extremely goddamn annoying music by John Bryan. <laughs> <laughs> Did not enjoy it at all. This movie's a giant waste of Luis Guzman. <laughs> and I will now return everybody to the music discussion. But ah, <laughs> man, uh, I love me some Luis Guzman. I uh, yeah I. Uh... Nicole's Nicole's right. Um, I I feel like like there are times in this movie where maybe the music is almost too aggressive, and that might pull away from from it a bit. I think what I I think what my inherent love of it is that I love it when a movie's composer says like, "Hey, let's do something different." And I think that's the musician in me is that mm-hmm. if I was to compose a movie. Um, I, I, I'd probably be like, Hey, why don't we bring in like a jazz drummer and see what happens instead of just like, let's do the orchestra and they will watch the movie while it goes and they will score it perfectly. And like, I don't necessarily know if I want that. And that's just the experimental artist in me. And at times experimentalism doesn't work. Um, I'd be curious, Matthew, what your thoughts are. Um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, and I think at times it worked better than other times. Um, like I, I definitely noticed the parts where it was, uh, kind of representing the chaos in Barry's mind. Um, and at times it just, everything seemed to be getting too loud. Right. The music, the sound effects and all the voices were all clashing with each other. And that was, I think I know what they were going for emotionally, but it made it difficult to pay attention as a viewer during those points for what it's worth. I think, uh, I keep mentioning Birdman because I think Birdman is a great parallel. Uh, has anyone seen Birdman here? Yes. Nope. Okay. So Birdman is done entirely with one jazz drummer. That is basically the entirety of it. And it's done where like, you know, Michael Keaton will be like running down the street. And it's like, it's like, it's like not your typical soundtrack. And, um, it was done by a guy named Antonio Sanchez. And, um, oh wait, no, I'm sorry. It was done by Victor Hernandez, who was the jazz composer. And, um, that film I think does it better because, because it's just a, they made the decision in that film to be like, this is a jazz drummer who is going to drum along with this movie and help foster the emotional direction of the film. Whereas the one part of this film that does lose me is the random inclusion of 1950s sing-along songs. That, I feel, is entirely unnecessary. I, I kind of dig it at times because it's odd and I like odd music, but I would have been happier if it was just, here's the you know bizarre avant-garde jazz beat soundtrack. <laughs> so I, 
the one about he needs me it goes on forever yeah <laughs> that, that song distracted me particularly because i remember it from popeye that uh that song featured prominently in the live action popeye yes in fact in sung fact by olive um, oil yeah, in fact, they actually mentioned Popeye in the uh, commentary. They're like, yeah, we thought that worked really well with this. <laughs> so that's intentional. Um, and then also there's a harmonium, which Adam Sandler incorrectly calls a piano the entire movie um, until Lena later Until someone corrects him. him. Yeah, until he corrects him. Now, the harmonium's very weird. It's in, like, the opening scenes. It just kind of gets dropped off. There's no reason for it. Keep in mind, it gets dropped off by a car that is just flipping down the street. They, oh, like, I stop... Thought, no, wait. No, I thought that... There was a car that flipped, and then a second car, a second car goes totally by. ignores the accident, pulls over, dumps the harmonium, the harmonium onto the, the road, sidewalk, and, and then pulls out. Off. Okay, that's yeah, it yeah. then, yeah. And then they drop it off, and it kind of sits there, and Lena sees it because she drives in, because she's kind of stalking Adam Sandler, and uh, then he picks it up and just like scurries inside and he has his coffee cup on top of it and the coffee cup falls off. He doesn't even care. He's just running inside before no one sees him with it. And he just kind of starts playing with it. And the whole movie, he's kind of just playing with it. And then the final scene of the movie, he's kind of just playing with it. And I don't, uh, you know, Nicole put in our docket, what does it represent? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Is, is, it, is it like yeah. moments when he feels happier? Maybe. This could, yeah, I mean, this could be where I put on my high school English uh, literature pants, <laughs> and you know, I can we can go into it. It represents the peace that he feels inside of himself. I mean, I guess you could say it kind of represents their relationship in a way. I guess it's kind of uh, dumped amidst chaos into his life. And he's like slowly sort of learning how to navigate it slash play it. That's uh, all I got. On a website that is devoted entirely to punch drunk love as an expressionistic piece of art. Is expressionistic a word or is it just expressionist? I digress. Um, perhaps the most notable uses of visual symbolism as an expression lies within a key element of the film, the harmonium. There are several interpretations that can be made for the meaning of the harmonium, all of which the film supports. But ab above all, it represents a symbol of love, or more notably, the love shared by Barry and Lena. Like love, the harmonium suddenly arrives when Barry... Uh, arrives to Barry, and he slowly learns to play it. The harmonium suffers tears as Barry gets in trouble with the phone sex operation. However, it is still in the lovely final shot of the film, which establishes the connection of love and the harmonium, as Lena tells Barry, so here we go. And holds I will take my A-plus. Harmonium instant <laughs> with the score. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> or at least at least in terms of this website. Of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it seems like he gets he gets some comfort from it, from just sort of noodling around on it. And then there's one point where he's stressed and he kind of rests his head on it and is just caressing the keys with his fingers um, as if he was almost like he's petting a cat kind of thing. Um, and he's over the course of the movie, he's repairing it. He's figuring out what's wrong with it and he's putting duct tape on it and he's getting it to working condition. So I don't know if that's him building a relationship or him kind of pulling himself together or what's going on. Right. So uh, 
I also want to talk about the sex hotline. <laughs> uh, another instance of, of horrible loneliness in this film. He calls the sex hotline, yes. really has no interest in, in sexy time. He just wants to talk about his feelings. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then she later extorts him and sends guys to beat him up. And later yeah. crash a car into him, which is honestly a really bad way to. I mean, I know like it's it's a it's it's a good statement, but you're wrecking your own car. It's not an effective way to go about collecting funds. Well, they're not. It's not their car. It's Philip Seymour Hoffman's car. Right. He's the guy uh, paying them. Yeah, there's some things about that storyline that I get why it's there in the film, but I don't. I don't know why, like. They try to extort him, like, we'll tell your girlfriend. I don't have a girlfriend. And then they just keep pushing the extortion. It was a fine plot line, but I, I don't know. It it didn't have... It, it was it was there to provide the conflict of the film, but it's just at times it was okay. It didn't really do much for me. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I'm kind of in agreement with David, like, they started with what I guess could have been a good extortion plan, but once they find out he's single and he doesn't really have that much money, it's like time to give up, guys. There's nothing here. But they keep going after him all the way from Utah. Like, don't they have better people to extort? <laughs> uh, I love the... I love the innocent nature of Adam Sandler's character so much to the point that after he's being extorted, after Hitman have been sent to beat him up, he then calls the hotline back and is like, I need to speak to a manager. Uh, <laughs> like, you don't think that everyone might be in on this, Barry. <laughs> this might be coming from the top in the, to begin with. Uh, I always found that really... Also, um, sex hotlines... Do they ask for your social security? I don't no, think they do. They do not. <laughs> not unless they're trying to extort you. Right. Yeah. So nobody asks for your social security number over the phone. At least nobody legit. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of a uh, lot of red flags in that scenario <laughs> a as lot well. Of red flags. But the uh, the whole him like they're they're acting like it's super weird that he just wants to like talk about his feelings. From, like, my understanding, that actually happens a lot with, like, phone sex lines and, like, prostitution. And, yeah, sex workers in general. Yeah, guys, like, yeah, there's obviously the, the sex part of it, but there's, like, this weird place where uh, some guys feel like they can open up there, they can't open up at home. And so it's like they would want him to talk about his feelings because he's going to talk longer on the phone in that scenario. Like, if... Uh, if they just get him off, then he's going to be like, all right, cool, I'm done, hang up, thanks, bye. But if he's just sitting there chatting, like he's going to talk forever. Maybe it's because it's not a legitimate sex... I, I, I actually don't know, because keep in mind this is being run out of the back room of Philip Sr. Hoffman's mattress warehouse. Um, run by one woman, True. and by the way, I love that. I love that mental image when it just cuts to her, and she's in this like dingy back closet, like do like you know doing her nails and and picking up two different phones to act as both the receptionist and the the woman on the line, which is why she has to call him back. Um, which I remember well, watching this for the first time, and I'm like, they're never gonna call him back, but she does call him <laughs> back a second later because yeah. you got to extort him. But uh, you actually really don't need to extort him at that point, do you? Like you have all of his information. So. Yeah, they could have just taken that and run. 
I guess it was probably because he canceled his credit card. Yeah, but not till the next morning. If they they got all his information that night, they could yeah. have just been like, okay, thanks. Yeah. I, I guess, like, from a standpoint, they were trying to get him to do it willingly with the whole rent thing. Mm-hmm. So that way, like, he wouldn't cancel the cards. And right. then he, like, went, you know, like, wait, he's actually trying to stop us instead of giving us all of his money? How oh, dare he? This is supposed to go. <laughs> and then there's a moment in the film where the second interaction he has with these, um, you know, rent a hitmen. They show up, hit his car. The four blonde brothers. The four blonde brothers. They hit his car, spirals out of control. Uh, Lena gets a little head wound and goes to the hospital, and she's fine, but he leaves her there to run around with the telephone and yell at Philip Sr. Hoffman. But um, they, 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 their car is stopped, and he gets out of the car, punches one of them, grabs a crowbar from the other one, hits the other one with a crowbar, and then gets inside the car, or doesn't not, or next to their car, bashes out their windows, and then just like aims the crowbar down at the fourth brother while he's cowering in the corner and giving it back to him. I love that yeah. scene because it's just like it's so intense, and it's just like he knows what he's doing. Like this guy has clearly fought before, and that's not really alluded to in the film has, before. Then. Though I don't think that he has. I think this was supposed to be the like the manifestation of his anger. In its healthiest form, but he like, grabs guess. the crowbar and stuff like like if like I, I as a person who has never been in a fight, a physical fight, um, I don't think I would be like grab the crowbar like that was so drastic. I've played enough video games to know to grab the crowbar. <laughs> okay, that maybe part. maybe, but the the one guy he doesn't hit is the guy that punched him earlier. <laughs> And I, I do love the, the scene where he's running away and they drive up next to him. And I'm like, where are you going? We know where you live. Yeah. <laughs> he's running and crying. Yeah, I had the yeah. subtitles on and it's the subtitles are crying uncontrollably as he's running. Um, and I mean, he's just, you know, this is this is all too much for him. It's all just too much. He's already emotionally overloaded most of the time. But this this scene with the car and um, coming in, I mean, I think, you know, the big difference is he's got Lena with him. Lena got hurt. And that's that's flipped a switch somewhere that letting him control and direct his anger. Mm -hmm. And so he comes out, you know, and pops one guy, grabs a crowbar, crowbar and like in just one smooth motion swings and whacks the other guy. And then comes right up, no hesitation, smashes the truck window. And it's just, you know, bing, bam, boom. And then pass the crowbar back to the guy because he's made his point now. <laughs> I So kind of what this is all kind of pointing to is one thing that I've come to realize I don't love in movies. And I can appreciate at times, but where love is this mystical force that... <laughs> makes us their best selves and heals everything wrong with us and in the case of interstellar connects us across galaxies hey well, you don't know that's not true <laughs> that's all right you know that's true a lot of things love in interstellar are not true but uh... but like that, that that's one thing that in, in movies that have I, I guess i'm maybe getting a little more cynical as time goes on no. uh what weird how that happens <laughs> Uh, catch me on the Heck Yeah Comics podcast where we have that conversation once a week. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's this thing where it's like, 
yeah, okay, being in a relationship is not going to fix all your problems, Adam Sandler. You have you got so much intensive therapy to do. Be responsible. <laughs> and just the thing of like he, you know, yeah, he's he ran away before, but now he's going to step up and he's going to fight and he's going to beat them all up. Why? Because he has love. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, doesn't always doesn't really work for me. <laughs> Yeah, the and he even was, has. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Matthew. The fight was one of a few times during the movie that I kind of thought that he might be either hallucinating or imagining something. Agreed. Because um, it just it goes really fast and is not and is a lot more uh, graceful than his fights with bathrooms and windows. <laughs> That's true. Um, but like there's that and then the the very beginning where there's a car crash and then a harmonium dumped off like just certain things like that seem like they were not they may not actually be real um no. but by the end of the movie i think that it is the case that they happened in universe that's a really um, good point though like this but in the mo- in the moment it's very bizarre and kind of dreamlike yeah, there is a surrealist element of this movie where there I you I've never thought of that. There are times where you could think like this is not happening. Um well, that is kind of a hallmark of Paul Thomas Anderson as he That's true. He he often has a a heightened element at least somewhere in his movies. It yeah, and there's there's there are these kind of moments that feel unreal where like where the rest of the movie will be very grounded and then something will happen where it's like, wait, whoa. Like I, I always think of that scene in uh Boogie Nights, which guys Boogie Nights is a great film. Uh when William H. Macy's character walks out of the room after shooting his uh, wife and, and her lover and then just shoots himself in the head in the middle of this party. And that's like the end of the scene, and it's like there's a whole like second of like the screen's black, and you're like, wait. Wait, what? What just happened? <laughs> like it just it, it everything had felt so grounded in these really realistic conversations and then whoa. Right. Yeah, I, I could absolutely see that see that with this film. Um it is it's there there it is a very bizarrely paced film and is very bizarrely presented. Um even like the shots in the film a lot of the time are very empty, and again I think that that alludes to like kind of the loneliness of the film where like he's going through the grocery store and everything's like really overexposed and well lit so it's kind of agitating to look at and he's the only person in the aisles unless he brings his friend with him um and uh, Luis Guzman all right let's yes. let's give the man some credit yes. he's Luis <laughs> um yep. or same thing when he's when he's at work and he's in the storage locker or you know anything like that it's always very desolate and the shots are the the cinematography of it just chooses to overexpose and chooses to um like make these scenes of loneliness really pop in aggressive ways at times um yes. which is which is a very interesting decision and one question we have in our docket from Nicole is what's going on with Barry and I think we've touched on that to varying degrees in this, in this discussion thus far um but do we really ever get a a good resolution with him. I think that's always been my one issue with the film. My one primary issue is that um, it's just, we don't really know whether he gets the miles. I mean, I guess he does and I guess he's with the girl at the end, but we don't really have well, a resolution of his internal demons that much. Like his sisters yeah, are still going to be I want to know if he ever him. gets psychiatric assistance here. Which he because deeply this, needs. 
Yeah, he has got serious emotional problems. And and part of that is his his he had very abusive sisters in ways that I didn't understand they were being abusive. Yeah, they all yeah, called him the gay boy for his, his sisters are life. calling. They yeah. call him, you know, like all of them call him to make sure he's coming to this party. Oh, and the and, dialogue in that felt so unnatural and stilted. Anyway. Yes. Well, but they're they're all checking to see if he's coming because he's it's clear he's got a history of not showing up for gatherings even if he says he will. And he's hesitant, and he, he assures them that he's coming, except for the one sister who actually shows up, and he tells her, well, maybe I won't come. And when he does come, it's shown he's 100% justified in not, not wanting to go. Remember when we called you gay boy? Are you gay? Oh, God. Oh. Horrible. I, I, you know, he's not blameless and, and obviously his upbringing was fairly rough and that he was ostracized from his sisters and tormented in so many various ways but the dude has got a long road of of psychiatric help <laughs> ahead of him yeah. if he's ever going to be in a functional relationship is there any resolution um, or does it need some sort of uh, reconciliation with that main sister? This is a question from David. I believe that main sister is the one who introduces him to Lena, played by Mary Lynn, was it Raj Scoob? Um, she's actually been it's in one of those things. JK names. <laughs> um, she's, you know, she was in, I, I recognized her from, from 24 because she was in that forever. Um, yeah, she's <laughs> a that woman who was in yeah. that thing. Exactly, you know stuff exactly. like Loma's Sunshine and a bunch of chick flicks that my mom owns, Sweet Home Alabama, Legally Blonde too, stuff like that. Uh, she's been in all that stuff, and she shows up here. She is by far the most irritating sister of the bunch. I think it's fair to say. Um, maybe it's just because we get the most screen time with her, but she's yeah, so mean to them. If we spent time with the other ones, we'd find them all equally as irritating. <laughs> Probably. But like she, she, she like calls her, 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 you know, her friend and, and bad mouths him and says mean things about him and says he's crying and says he's, you know, he's just, she's not, she's like, well, she's like trying to hook him up, but then also like slamming him down to this woman. They, uh, and they try to pull this bullshit thing where it's like, uh, when, uh, Lena says like, oh yeah, he is a little odd. She's like, no, you can't, you can't call him that. Like we can call him that, which like. Yes, that's a thing with family. I can insult my siblings, and I will get pissed if anyone else insults them. Like, that's an absolute thing. But the way that they treat him is like, don't try to claim you're doing it out of love. Because you're not. Yeah, uh, what do you think, Matthew? This is a weird dynamic of the movie, The Seven Sisters. And you think he's joking at first, like when he keeps getting calls, and, and the guy's like, you really have that many sisters? And he's like, yeah, I have seven. You think it's a joke, but no, there's seven. Yeah, it was odd. Um, and it is, it's weird because, um, in the, uh, in the trivia that I was reading, six of them that are at the party are non-professional actors. They're just like people they knew. And the one sister who keeps showing up is the main one. It's like, why are there seven? Just to make it that much worse that he was... (laughs) At that time, seven. It's it's because this is Paul Thomas Anderson trying to make a short film, but he can't control himself with still <laughs> making a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. 
I just thought the the interesting trivia bit from the from the party is that the the there's like six of the brothers in law and four of them are actual siblings. They're they're actual brothers. Really, they've all got okay. the same last name anyway. Well, no, no, no. Did the they just four go brothers, and find, like two or three Jewish families, and just brought or them in the as four, extras. Oh, or the four brothers, the, the four the blonde, blonde guys? brothers. Yeah, the four. Oh, blonde brothers. and they're actual brothers. Oh, those are yep. actual brothers. Okay, I thought you were talking about. Okay, yeah. I thought it, I thought it was the brothers-in-law. Maybe I got confused. Gotcha. No, that would no, make it's sense. The four, the four blonde brothers. Yeah, which I, Adam Sandler calls them that at the end of the movie. It's like, how do you know? They all they look like brothers. I. Sure. Think how blonde people look alike? Come on. Yes. <laughs> uh, Touche. Yeah, it's, it, you know, as we start to wrap down here, I'd like to kind of go around the table and talk about whether or not this is a film you'd recommend. I think this is a film that if you'd recommend it, you might recommend it to a specific audience. Uh, I'd like to, or, or you might not recommend it. I'd like to start with Matthew, of course, as our guest. Um, you know, is this a film that you'd recommend? Is it is it a film that you'd ever return to? And you know, like just kind of leaving the conversation, punch drunk love. What do you think? Um, I, for most people I know, I don't think I would recommend it. Um, maybe to some some film people I knew in college, um, although they've probably already seen it, so I don't need to recommend it to them. Um. And I don't really see myself returning to it. Um, although you guys have mentioned a few other Paul Thomas Anderson movies, and I went through his list, and I think this is the first one I've seen of his. Mm, okay. Um, I would be curious to go see a few of his other movies to see what kind of uh, things he used in here have shown up in different ways. You're going to want to block out about three hours of your day, but it'll be worth it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is certainly the movie where he embraced brevity. Um, yeah. yeah, he's an interesting director. I mean, David is absolutely right at the beginning of the show. Um, he's done a lot of really brilliant work. I mean, There Will Be Blood, great movie. Really a great movie. Daniel Day-Lewis in that, The Hat, you got to love it. Um, I love just dressing Daniel Day-Lewis up. Like, I think that's one of my favorite Hollywood pastimes is dressed up with Daniel Day-Lewis, where you just put him in really cool outfits, because um, he always looks badass and always has really cool <laughs> facial hair. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's I, I would agree with Matthew in the extent like that I, you know, Matthew and I went to the same school, and I'm sure we had a lot of the very similar film student buddies, and I, I think all my film student buddies would really like this film. Uh, Nicole, what about you? I... I think I would only recommend it for diehard Paul Thomas Anderson fans. I think if you want to see a movie that he's made um, about a man with emotional problems uh, trying to find his way in the world, I would strongly recommend seeing The Master instead. Uh, The Master is a fantastic uh, film. It's absolutely beautiful. It's got an amazing pair of performances from Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it's it's loosely based on uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology and the beginnings mm. of it. Um, but, you know, it's this emotionally disturbed man kind of falls into their orbit and the cult leader sort of makes him his pet project. Um and I, it's 
beautifully shot. The music is fantastic. It's, I would definitely recommend that highly um, over this one. This one, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of aggressively idiosyncratic. Um, you know, it's not, I don't think he's at this point, he was quite a hundred percent comfortable um, or maybe not confident in, in putting things together smoothly. I don't know how to put it. It, it doesn't flow as well as his later work. Sure. Sure. And uh, David, what about you? I think kind of, as everybody said, this, uh, two specific people, they will really enjoy this film. If you're a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan, this is your first Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I wouldn't recommend this as your first Paul Thomas Anderson movie, probably. (laughs) Uh, but you know, if you do want to watch a movie that I believe better utilizes both Philip Seymour Hoffman and Luis Guzman, might I recommend Boogie Nights? Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I would also throw in that uh, there's a there's a third category of people who would enjoy this film, and it's Sandler apologists because it's the best ace card you have. It's the best way to apologize for him uh, because um, even if the artistic style stylization of this film isn't something that appeals to you, uh, there's really no doubt that Sandler does great with what he has. He takes some of his strengths, which is um, like awkward awkwardness and aggression and he gives them some more depth and he actually gives them a little bit of meaning instead of just billy madison productions um so my hope my my sincere hope is that i badly want to see adam sandler have a renaissance where he comes back and does stuff that people like him for even if it's comedies that are just good and maybe all that takes is having him not control it give him a director and a writer and take away his friends and he might hate it but it'll be better and uh maybe we're seeing that maybe a big maybe with this new netflix movie we gotta see what the next one is because this is out of three out of five i believe that they've contracted him for with option to extend oh it's four you're right it's four um yeah, four. And with an option to extend, so maybe he's a money machine for them, so maybe he'll do good things every once in a while. So, uh, yeah, if you like this movie, uh, go ahead and maybe watch this new movie coming out. I'm going to watch it and see if it's any good. So, uh, I, that's going to do it for myself, for David, uh, for Nicole, and for Matthew. Of course, on uh, Movie Go Round, we uh, always do a rotating theme. So, uh, the theme next week is Future Classics. Now, Future Classics uh, is Nicole's pick, and Nicole has yep. snuck an, in, in a, uh, an international film in here for us, because David and I have not seen it. So, why don't you tell us a bit about what we're watching next week, Nicole? Uh, next week we will be watching The Great Beauty. Uh, the Italian title is La Grande Bellezza. And, uh, this movie came out, oh, I want to say four years ago. Um, and I don't know. I feel like the less I tell you, the better. Um, okay. So it's about a man who's in, I, I believe he's, we open on his 60th birthday party. He's a, a journalist and a writer and um, just kind of looking at his life and his view of it and um, wandering around Italy in the meantime. And it is. Uh, it is three hours <laughs> long. That's what it is. It is a long movie. Yes. <laughs> David's face. But 
I honestly, once you get into it, I don't think you'll mind. And keep tissues handy. All right, all right, Nicole. I would never, ever pick this in a million years, but that's kind of the point of this category, so I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on it, um, or at least the point of us picking movies you know, ro- in a rotating fashion. So I'm down. Right. I'm, I'm down. I'm going to get into and this. I absolutely believe that history will judge us to be a classic movie. All right, all right. Well, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to set that before the panel of of three next <laughs> week. But let's go around the horn one more time, where everybody can find everybody else. Matthew, your art, all that good stuff. Where can people find it? Uh, skippinginfinity.com is my main website, uh, and it has all my social media links on there: uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where you can find more regularly updated stuff. Um, and if you look up the coloring book. Uh, Wyverns and Watchtowers Book of Coloring Plus One on Amazon. You can find my coloring book. Absolutely, right on. Uh, this will be coming out uh, probably first week of December. So, hey, if you have an adult in your life that likes adult coloring books, or even a kid in your life who loves D and D or something like that, might be a good stocking stuffer of sorts. So, check that out. Uh, David, where can people find you? As always, people can find me over at the Heck Yeah Comics podcast, heckyeahcomics.com, or Heck Yeah Comics, wherever things are sold. Uh, hopefully, I, by the time this comes out, I will have been able to sit down with comic writer John Arcudi for an interview. Very excited to have that uh, up on the feed, hopefully now, fingers crossed. You can also find me on the Brokebot Mountain podcast over at Blazing Caribou Network. And does um, uh, Davluz, D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, find me there. Wonderful, wonderful. I was talking with uh, one of your BrokeBot co-hosts, a longtime friend of all of ours, Phil Rude, and we're going to hopefully get him on this program in one of the future rotations as he starts to organize his life post-hurricane. Uh, so good vibes to Phil, and hopefully we can get him on the show soon. Uh, and Nicole, what about you? What do you got going on? Um, you can find me still curating our Geek Cinema Society, the Archive Facebook page. And uh, by this point, we will have our Movie Go Round Facebook page up and running, and you can find me there. And if you so if you have any questions for the program or points you want to make or things you want to suggest, that would be a good place to do it. Um, or you can find me personally on Twitter under at your word and that's Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z. Right on. My name's Brett Stewart. Find me on brettdavidstewart.com. All the links to Twitter and all that good stuff are over there. Next week, join us for The Great Beauty for a future classics episode. See you then.